0: Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic
1: in Denver and Longmont, Colorado.
0: Well, back by popular demand. It's so great to have you today, Bella. We're so, I'm so excited and we get to talk about Everything parasites that both you and I are grossly
1: fascinated by. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm so excited for this.
0: <laughs> so, um, I just really want to get into it because I think um, people have a lot of questions about this, there's a lot of misinformation about parasites. So, um, so first off, what are parasites?
1: Yeah, oh, such a good question to start. Okay, so parasites. There are three different types that we need to know about, okay? There are the microscopic and the macroscopic types. So the macroscopic ones are the ones that we can see, and the most common types of those are the ectoparasites, so like fleas and ticks and lice that might be on our pets or unfortunately on us if we get head lice. Um, They're sort of like the first big category. The second category are also macroscopic, so ones that we can see, they're the worms. They're the first category that we can test on stool testing. So things like roundworm, pinworm, tapeworms. Um, And then the third type, the type that I love, are the microscopic types. So these are also the guys that we're looking for on stool testing. And these are the types that impact um, majority of the clients that we see. So parasites or protozoa, basically, um, like blastocystis hominis, dientamoeba fragilis, um, giardia, uh, entamoeba coli, you've probably heard of you know, many of these different species before, and there are tons of good lab testing now that we can use to detect them for people, which is super exciting.
0: So if somebody says, okay, I went to, I'm having these gut issues and I went to my MD and they did a stool test, Hmm. which one, and they they said, oh, I don't have any parasites on my stool test. Um, Which one is that ruling out?
1: That is ruling out some of, but not all of the microscopic guys. So it might test for Giardia, Cryptosporidium and Entamoeba and that's it. That's all. Right. If they're lucky, they might get a couple more, like they might get dinamoeba and Blasto, but we know there are tons more than that. So often what we need to use is use lab testing in conjunction with symptoms for parasites to work out whether that's a risk factor for you.
0: So the lab testing that you're running versus that an MD is running are different.
1: I just want to point
0: that out. Okay. Just want to make sure that that gets out there. Um, And so, okay. So someone said, well, I haven't traveled internationally, so there's no way I could have a parasite. So why don't we dispel some of those myths on how you get parasites? Can you go over that a little bit? Yeah,
1: I'll just start with the USA, Australia, the UK. We are full of parasites. Mm-hmm. Australia is disgustingly full of parasites. <laughs> so, um, majority of my Australian clients, they got it from home. Same with my US clients. They, you know, some of them have never traveled outside of the US and they've got parasites and really, really nasty ones as well. Have you heard of beaver fever? No, I actually haven't. Oh, okay. I thought because people from Colorado obviously go look, do lots of hiking and, uh, uh-huh. you know, are drinking from natural streams and things. And that's one of the best places or the easiest places to catch Giardia, which is oh, what they, they call, they call it beaver fever. Uh, we just beaver call it fever. Giardia. Oh, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I mean, I didn't, I've never heard of beaver
0: fever. No pleasure. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: That's so funny. Yeah, yeah it's so true. It, Definitely heard yeah. of Giardia. <laughs> yeah. So American Waterways and Giardia is just crazy prevalence. So mm-hmm. um, so I think some of the other places that we can catch parasites. So obviously international travel is a really good one. At home is a really good one from infected water. So waterways, creeks, streams, um, water tanks in Australia. We have lots of water tanks I know rural properties in the US do as well. Um, parasites can be really common in water tanks. Uh, The hospital environment, unfortunately, is another really good place to capture parasites. Um, Childcare centers is a really good place to get worms. Um, Other animals is a really good place to get ticks, fleas and lice. So it's, it's not just international travel. And I guess the other thing that's really important to know about these organisms is that they're really good at living outside of the human body. So... You know, if you're, um, if you're swinging in a, a creek or stream, you're going to catch it from the creek or stream. If there's something infecting your door handles because someone who's had an infection has coughed into their hand or something and or has gone to the toilet and not washed their hands properly, has touched your door handle, they're going to live on the door handle and you could get it from there. So it could also be in your home environment, not to freak anyone out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and on so... So it's basically transmitted from person to person and it can live on surfaces. Do you know for how long
1: I think it varies per parasite. I don't really know the details, but I know some of the bugs are swimming pools is another big one, so cryptosporidium swimming pools um and I believe I don't know for sure, but I think I read somewhere um I don't know how reliable a source was, but it could live in swimming pools and like for fourteen days, so that's a long time I mean I feel like
0: in the midst of this COVID, I think people are really getting some interesting, um, perspective on viruses, right? And I mean, mm. all of these things are similar. You know, they can live, we, yeah. we, we cough, you know, we're we're transporting this from human to human. Everything mm. is, you know, relatively close, you know, yeah. so now everybody's really panicked about social distancing. Now we have another reason. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I mean, does that mean that we might wipe out, like all this social distancing that we're doing, are we going to wipe out other bacteria, viruses, and parasites because we're doing so much social distancing for such a decent period of time? Time. Who knows? It's possible, right? Yeah. So, with animals, um,
0: you know, where they are the carriers. So, for example, with ticks on, you know, a dog, generally the ticks don't choose to burrow in the dog. They want a human host. Is the same true for some of the air, other parasitic infections?
1: Yeah, worms are a big one. So, um, Diantamoeba fragilis can live on, so the microscopic parasite can live on certain types of worms that can live in the soil. So, if you're walking and you step on a certain infected piece of soil and that worm burrows up into the sole of your foot and, and brings um, that microscopic parasite with it, it's a really easy way to get that infection um, from our environment. And I guess the big one is, you know, fecal or oral transmission as well. So, you know, contaminated foods and waters and things like that, that we're just putting straight into our GI tract?
0: Yeah, actually it was interesting. I've, I, I, read a study, um, you know, I really am into mold, but I read a study that about 25% of the American food supply was contaminated. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's really scary. <laughs> so, I mean, and I don't know, yeah. you know, if that, you know, they felt that was more with um, mold contamination or mold exposure, but at, you wonder how much of that could be other critters, other bugs i you yeah know, I don't have the stats on that or the numbers
1: on that yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I think bacteria is a big one, isn't it? you know bacteria in food that's been sitting around for too long you know, and I think uh, in Australia, we had an outbreak of bacteria in packaged lettuce and it all got recalled from our international, like from our grocery stores internationally. And yeah, so who knows how much is living in tiny quantities on the foods that are sitting in our grocery stores even.
0: Right. So um, you also said, so on the animals, so they will live on top, so they'll carry it into the house, you know, from the soil, from the dirt, you know, walking barefoot's another way. So in our water supply, even if it's being treated, you know, with chlorine and fluorine, it's Mm -hmm. still able to live.
1: Yeah. Cryptosporidium is a pretty renowned bug for living in infected, like living in swimming pools and surviving chlorine. Incredible. Yeah.
0: That I didn't know. Yeah, That's a really super interesting fact.
1: Yeah. It's and it's a nasty parasite, too, like people get really horrible symptoms from crypto um, and you know it's it's not that they necessarily get symptoms straight away. it's usually once the parasite gets inside them and proliferates and grows into big enough numbers that it starts producing symptoms. so it can be hard to identify when when you got it and how it started
0: so something that I have clinically seen in practice, and I don't know how true this is. But it seems with full moons that yeah. they, they reproduce like the the patient' symptoms always get worse around full moon time yeah is, is that true are they replicating and
1: reproducing under a full
0: moon more
1: frequently Yes, so clients will report more an increase in symptoms around the full moon. And if I have a client where we have done a stool test and we haven't found parasites, but they have all the symptoms, we will potentially retest on the next full moon and we will most likely find a parasite. I have a client in Australia who we had done about three stool tests um, and we haven't found any parasites and she had all the typical classical symptoms. We'd been working on other things. So it wasn't Um, we weren't too worried but it got to the point where we needed to figure out what was going on she didn't want to just take any parasitic natural antimicrobials without knowing that she had something Mm -hmm. so we waited we retested her around the full moon and she had blasto and dientamoeba which are those microscopic parasites that hadn't shown up on three previous lab tests but showed up once we hit the full moon because like you said they're more active they're coming out in the stool Um, because we know parasites go through life cycles right so they've got their cyst form and their active form so we want to capture them when they're in their active form because it's easier to detect in the stool test that way. Mm -hmm.
0: And what percentage of people do you think potentially have a parasite? What would be your guess?
1: I don't know, but out of the clients that I see, pretty much, yeah, pretty much everyone. Yeah. And I I think the other thing is if if you have gut health symptoms um, and associated symptoms, we can talk about what they are later. But if you've got like a parasite symptom profile, you've, eaten at a restaurant, drank water out, um, basically you've left your home. It's likely, and you know, you potentially have a compromised immune system. Your stomach acid's not great. You're you're generally distressed like we all are in life. You're just really high risk. I mean, and I
0: think most people have compromised stomach acid.
1: I mean, I think that's
0: across the board because we're so wired Mm -hmm. and tired and stressed out. So, I mean, just is a perfect environment for it to slip in, and people don't realize that. So, can yeah. you talk through the um, just the stomach, how the stomach acid process, how that lowers, and how the parasite will take up residence? Just so people can understand how they're like, well, I'm not eating food that's contaminated, or my stomach acid's fine. Can you just talk through that real quick?
1: Yeah, sure. So, stomach acid is a gastric juice that is very much impacted by how stressed we are. So let me just deviate into the immune system and sorry, the nervous system for a second. Basically, if we are constantly living in a sympathetic dominant state, so that means that our body is in fight or flight mode rather than parasympathetic dominant, so our rest and digest mode, then it is very, very difficult, if not almost impossible, for the body to produce gastric juices, so digestive enzymes, stomach acid, and bile, because the body is not prioritizing digestion. Okay, so if we're sitting there and we're eating a meal in a state of stress rather than being rested and relaxed, then those three protective juices within the body will not be firing if we eat something that's contaminated. And like we said, who knows anything that you're eating out at a restaurant is high risk, you know, potentially foods from our grocery store could be impacted. We don't know. You said 20% of our food supply is potentially impacted. Then we're getting these critters that are are everywhere, right? They're a natural part of the environment. They come into our body. If our digestive juices aren't firing, then they have the ability to not be killed off by the stomach acid, not be impacted by digestive enzymes, make it into our GI tract and set up camp. Some of those bugs will also live systemically in the body. So, you know, it doesn't matter about your stomach acid. If you're stepping on a piece of dirt that has a worm in it, that has dyentomoeba fragilis, right? It's gonna burrow up through the sole of your foot. So you know it it's doesn't even go through the the GI tract you're not even coming through the stomach, so there are more ways to catch a parasite than just being impacted by contaminated foods coming through the gut
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and what are the symptoms of potentially
0: having a parasitic infection?
1: Yeah, sure, so I think the most common um, symptoms that we see are or that I see in clinic are our gut symptoms, so And as I said before, you know, some bugs, you'll get symptoms straight away and they'll be pretty intense, but some, it takes a while for the infection load to build up in your body before you start to exhibit symptoms. So I think the most common symptoms that we see are more of the gas, bloating, diarrhea, um, constipation is huge. we might also see secondary symptoms, so more of the brain stuff, so anxiety, depression, low mood, um, memory issues. Uh, fatigue is massive for parasites. Brain fog. You know it's a really funky symptom that we see all the time is clients waking up from 2 to 3 a.m. in the morning. That's a classic parasite symptom. Mm-hmm. So that's, that, um, that's your liver time and it's clients being impacted um, during their liver time during the night when the body's supposed to be clearing away toxins and things. Do you things think and- that's a liver fluke? Not always, but it could well be because I'll see clients with any of those microscopic parasites and even worms getting that two to three a.m. wake up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about
0: really... skin symptoms?
1: Yeah, eczema, psoriasis, yeah. acne, acne's big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think, what else? Um, uh, also, um, I think another one is like clients who are eating really, really well and still getting lots of symptoms, even though their diet and lifestyle is on point, that's another big clue that there might be something parasitic going on in their gut as well. Mm-hmm.
0: They yeah. just can't eat anything. Their diet cannot be opened up at all without them having some sort of symptom. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be something in the gut that is going on for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. What do you notice about itchy, just itchy skin, no skin symptoms?
1: Yes. Um, what do you mean by what do I notice? Can or do, you, do you, you believe that's a parasitic symptom? Yeah. Just itchy yeah. skin. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it's tricky. It could also be yeast, but yeah, mostly mm-hmm. that's a big clue for parasites. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of clients get itchiness around the eyes mm-hmm. as well. Have you noticed that? I yeah. have. Oh, maybe, if, I've also noticed the top of the head and then
0: arms mm. oddly. I, yeah. That's just something I've clinically noticed in practice. Yes. And I find, you know, I find most people have no idea when they were impacted by it or when they were exposed to a parasitic infection. Most people have no idea when it happened. There's, there's no date stamp. I I feel like it really takes a little bit of time after the, after the event to really see it build up. And then maybe people have a blind eye to it. You know, they're like, well, I got a little bloated and a little gassy, but then the skin condition showed up or then this thing showed up or this brain fog showed up. And it was over this, you know, six month amount of time. And wow, I I noticed it on these nights, which tend to be more full moon impacted. It's what I've, what I've noticed or what it's appeared. Um, I saw one time I saw like a horrible belly rash um, from a parasitic infection, (laughs) horrible belly rash. Which was interesting, you know, and then that's showing, you know, it's systemically in the, you know, entire system and not just Mm. in the gut itself. So to your point.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's um, some of these bugs and their ability to move systemically, like even the microscopic ones, they don't necessarily just stay in the gut. They can migrate throughout the whole body, you know, up into the brain, into the liver. You know, giardia, um, one of the hardest, the, the trickiest things about giardia is that when we're trying to get rid of it, because it's so good at migrating into the liver and the gallbladder, you can't just clean it out of the gut. You've got to clean That's it right. out of those environments as well, right? So it makes these bugs really tenacious. I think
0: it's really hard to get rid of them after they've started to migrate.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: When they're in the muscles and everywhere else systemically, Mm. I think they're challenging. I think they're much more challenging.
1: Yeah. That's actually another really good point. Blastocystis hominis. And in the literature, you'll see it everywhere as well. Um, Arthritis, like when it gets into the joints, it's pretty crazy how impacted people can be. I think as a chiropractor, you'd probably see that. Yeah, Yeah. I imagine.
0: Yeah. I think trichinella likes the joints as well yeah um, in muscles a lot i think that that's also been another one that loves yep. that area uh, can these be transmitted sexually do you find do you find that that's a, w- a way that it's passed or if
1: you don't know that's fine so if we think about fecal contamination then Obviously, depending on what you're, what activity you're doing, if you can get fecal contamination, yes, absolutely. Um, as far as I'm aware, the microscopic organisms, you can correct me because I don't know for sure, but as far as I'm aware, the microscopic organisms, I don't believe can get, unless they're in the genitourinary tract, um, but I'm not 100% sure about passing through in bodily excretions.
0: I think it can
1: happen. It can, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, Do you I know think which it species? can. I'm so fascinated by that. Trigonella can. research it? Okay. can be sexual. Yeah. Oh wow, it's that's crazy. I know. We
0: digress. Oh wow,
1: <laughs> that's so interesting.
0: <laughs> but I'll add I, that but to my list of things to tell people. Yeah, I think it can. Yeah. Be. Um, but there, you know, again, that's highly controversial. That's a whole lot like the Lyme controversy, Controversy mm-hmm. that there's some people say, yes, it absolutely can be. Some people say, no, it can't. can't no, we have no evidence of that. There's not a yeah. ton of evidence of that in the literature. But a lot of clinicians that specifically focus on Lyme disease will say, absolutely, we've seen it pass You've between the it. husband and wife. So yeah. I think that's like highly debated. Yeah. I would (laughs) say um, from what I've noticed, yes, there, there are some that can be passed sexually. Wow. That's (laughs) so interesting.
1: Thanks for that. I'm so happy to know that. (laughs)
0: Um, Okay. So, um, so are you seeing, you know, you talked a little bit about the brain symptoms. Are you seeing um, anything digress beyond that um, with brain symptoms other than brain fog Are you seeing any other clinical correlations that you think could be related to parasitic infections?
1: Depression and anxiety, like you mean medical, like diagnosable conditions? Yes. Big time. Um, Fatigue, brain fog, Um, beyond like just the normal foggy thinking and things, um, like going further into the body, you know, hormone imbalances and stuff like that are really common. Um, Weight gain can be really common. Is that what you mean?
0: Yeah, that or do you feel like it actually goes to could it go to brain deterioration?
1: Oh yeah. So some of these organisms can live in the brain tissue. So you're gonna get brain atrophy just from purely having a parasite living within the brain tissue. They can some of them can cross the blood blood brain barrier. So mm-hmm. you know, that's crazy. It's
0: so crazy. They are yeah. so tricky. They're so tricky. Yeah. So um okay, so how are you testing for parasites? Like what are you doing that's superior? Someone says, well, I got checked. I didn't have parasites. My MD told me I've got all the symptoms you're listing. Like what should the next steps be to get tested or what, what tests do you recommend to do?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, basically what we're looking for is we're looking for a DNA, a PCR test. Polymerase chain reaction DNA test. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of labs in the USA that do this sort of testing. One, am I allowed? Can I mention labs? Sure. Sure. Yep. Yep. So um, Diagnostic Solutions Laboratory did the GI map and it has a pretty decent parasite and worm pro- profile. Mm-hmm. Um, Genova GIFX, they've just brought out, out the new version of the Genova GIFX and it's got um, a massive PCR section for a ton of different parasites and worms. When was that,
0: that released? So. I didn't pretty know recently. that. Pretty recently.
1: Yeah. So I had a client. um, I think the first one I saw was November last year who had a lab report. It's like the extended, um, you know, like the extended GI effects lab. So some medical practitioners can access that testing and if they can, that's fantastic. But I think a lot of medical practitioners do basically a microscope test or if they do a PCR test, they don't test, they might test for three parasites. So the difference is, yeah. Right. And so the disc, This is how I describe it. It's not a great analogy, but basically I say a a, a microscope test is where a human sitting behind a microscope and you need a decent amount of bug or cyst to be able to pick that up, right? Like you probably need like nearly a whole organism, whereas a PCR test, a DNA test, you need tiny, tiny amounts of that bug to come out in your stool sample to be detected. So I usually say to my clients, it's like comparing a whole bug to the hair on a leg of a bug. Like it's a tiny amount of matter. So it's just infinitely more accurate. I think the biggest challenge that we have with stool testing right now is that the stool testing is only as accurate as what comes out in the stool. So like you said, testing around the full moon is a great time to make sure that we're getting our best chance of, of you know, getting parasites passing in the stool to be detected.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. And I mean, I think the GI map is an amazing test. I think that's a great, great test, yeah. but I did not know about the new Genova test. I didn't, I, I was not aware yeah, that I, they were actually checking because I have not liked most of the stool tests that are out and about. Yeah. I don't, you know, they have a parasite for a long time. We would know someone had a parasite and we couldn't find it. Yes. I mean, I think yeah. you, I think you can attest to that. We're like, yeah, why I isn't this showing that. up?
1: <laughs> yeah, even with these brilliant labs that we have, like if you don't get the right anything coming out in the stool sample and that, you know, there's a couple of reasons why and we can talk about those in a minute. Um, but I think one of, yeah, it's just testing error and and sometimes you need to go with symptoms. If the client has all of the parasite symptoms and it's not showing up on testing, then we might come to the agreement that we'll do a, um, some errat- parasite eradication work. And if they get symptom improvement, then we'll keep doing that because it's very likely that they've got parasites, especially right. if other things are showing on the stool test and other markers are indicating. But back to the Genova GIFX lab, I'm with you. I love the, the DSL GI map. Mm-hmm. Um, the FX lab, you have to ask specifically for that full profile, and I believe it's really expensive. So the from a value for money perspective, the GI map is probably my favorite go-to lab. Okay, that's yeah. great.
0: And so when you're actually eradicating
1: these parasites,
0: um, how long do you think it takes to eradicate a parasite?
1: Yeah, that is an amazing question too. So depending on how long the clients had the infection, how big the infection is, right? Because we don't necessarily know that. We get a, sometimes all we get is detected. That doesn't tell us whether right. you know they've got a tiny colony or if it's a massive colony or if it's migrated outside of their gut and it's systemically throughout their body. We don't know. So I think those factors really impact how long it takes. Generally, what we do... For our clients, is we start with if we're using natural antimicrobials, we might start with sixty days, and then we'll do some other work, and we'll you know we might do parasites, we might address bacteria and yeast, and we'll retest to see what we've got. If there's parasites still there, then we know that the infection was probably bigger than we thought, or it was systemically throughout their body, and we need to do more work. Um, you know, so sometimes it'll take sixty days. Clients will clear a parasite infection completely; um, they'll be feeling really good because we're also looking at symptoms. There are symptoms of gone away. For other clients, it you know, it can take multiple rounds of retesting and multiple rounds of, you know, a couple of months at a time using rotating through antimicrobials, using different herbs and things. And, you know, these are the clients that generally tend to have more severe symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I just want to point out, you know,
0: in the last interview um, we did together, you had an order that you treat things Um, You know, how you're treating the gut infections, what you're doing. And one of the biggest ones, one of the biggest fish that you like to fry initially is the parasitic infection, just because it affects so much. Is that still true for you?
1: Yes. And also because parasites let off a lot of wasty byproducts that feed bacteria and yeast and things like that. So you kind of want to eradicate their food source before you start addressing the bacteria and yeast.
0: So, I mean, what we're seeing in in common gut infections, and we'll just digress a little bit um, and then, you know, come back to just the topic of parasites. But when we have, you know, for example, we have, you know, a parasite, we have bacteria, we have dysbiosis, we have yeast, um, we have viral infections. When you're addressing that, when you see, for example, on a stool test, um, you know, if there's someone that says, I'm pretty sure I have a parasite, but just yeast came back on the test and bacteria. Are you pretty
1: certain in that situation that there's a parasite? Very likely. Yes. So in that case, if they have parasite symptoms, regardless of whether we find it on the lab or not, my advice to my clients is that you very likely have parasites because you've got these bugs downstream that are very likely feeding off them. Um, you've got all of the symptoms. And my recommendation is usually let's start with parasites because we know we're not going to get rid of that bacteria or yeast infection unless we get rid of the critter upstream who's feeding them. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly what we do.
0: It's so interesting. So interesting. So, um, So how are we eradicating these parasites naturally? How can we do that?
1: Yeah. So I think our first line of defense is our natural antimicrobial herbs. Sure. Um, we love our natural herbs. The, I think the other thing to remember is that a lot of these parasites, you know, antibiotics that people take for parasites work in the gut, And there are parasites that live outside of the gut. So if you have a bug that lives its life cycle outside of the GI tract, it's a waste of time taking antibiotics that work in that environment. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is where natural antimicrobials do a really good job because you can take different um, products that use different herbs that work inside the GI tract and outside. So for worms, for example, mimosa pudica is a great um, product that you can get that will work on worms like inside the GI tract, but you also need to address worms outside of the GI tract. So you need to take other herbs like neem and stuff like that, that will work um, systemically throughout the body. So um, I like to use for my first line of defense, I like to use, depending on whether we have, I mean, if, if I found a worm, we would do that first, then we would do our protozoa. So our little microscopic guys. So for worms, um, like I said, mimosa and neem are some of my favorite ingredients. Um, but for intracellular parasites, um, I like big blends, things that contain, you know, black walnut holes, sweet wormwood, um, all those sorts of things are really nice. Olive leaf can also work really well on parasites. Um, Artemisia is really good. So they Basically being rotated because I found early days of clinical practice, I was basically giving clients the same thing for 60 days and I found um, I was less likely to eradicate parasites than if I did more of a rotation. So now I usually start with rotating herbs every month um, and usually doing you know a two-month eradication plan, doing some other work on bacteria, yeast, retest, and then always trying to use different herbs every time but antimicrobials is where, where we start. Is that generally where you start as well with your antimicrobials? For sure. Um, yes. Um, sometimes
0: I work in a different order than you, but yes, definitely. I've seen, you know, it's been interesting. What I've seen clinically is, Mm -hmm. um, I think neem just produces, can produce so many die off symptoms and so can olive leaf. Those I actually see hit much harder than, um, traditional things that we think of. Um, you know like walnut hole and i I feel like they they hit so much harder, and you almost have to start that dosing much lower that's what i've yes. observed in practice have yeah. you observed the same thing
1: i'm uh, I generally use Blends so products that have small amounts of neem and olive leaf. Olive leaf is a really tricky one because it's a big immune activator as well. Um, obviously, if you start if you start kicking someone's immune system up, and then they're getting more and more symptoms because of the immune reactions. Um, so olive leaf is one that you need to be careful with, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. it works incredibly well. So sometimes, if I have a really robust client, I'll get them to use those herbs. Um, but generally, I use products that are available that are in blends, um, yeah. and like you said, their primary ingredient is usually like black walnut hole or something like that mm-hmm. so you're totally it, right you have to be I careful think it's a kicker. I think it's a kicker for sure yeah how so, do your clients go with um
0: oregano um so oregano is a is yes oregano so oregano like, australian um, <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny I love it when you say <laughs> herbs too I love that it just makes me smile every time yeah um so oregano I feel like is very very powerful in a lot mm. of bad cases. I feel like it really works. There's, um, there's a there's a blend that I actually use that's enterically coated, so I get it down into the lower system. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that one actually works superiorly because it actually makes it all the way down into the small intestine. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that works superiorly to to other ones that are not enterically coated. Mm-hmm. So I I like that quite a bit. So um, I've seen, and I mean, I feel like it, those are good. You know, because they're going to work the board, right? They're gonna work if you have a viral infection. They're yes. gonna work if you have a SIBO infection. They're gonna work yeah. if you have a parasite. They're gonna also work on yeast. And you know, and so I yeah. mean across the board they're gonna work on a lot of these gut infections. So I I do like to switch it up and 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 do that. And I feel like that's been helpful. And what I have noticed when doing this when you're eradicating these infections is people that come in and they're like, so I eat chicken and broccoli and that's all I can eat. I can have mm-hmm. carrots and chicken or that's it. That's all they can eat. Yeah. Suddenly their diet loosens up. Have you noticed yeah. that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That mm-hmm. was my personal experience. So mm-hmm. I'm really happy that you mentioned my chicken, broccoli and olive oil mm-hmm. diet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I remember. Um, I hear
1: you. I hear you. Um, yeah. It's, it's pretty, tricky when you get to the point where you are so limited with your diet and it doesn't matter what you put down, you're reacting and you're getting crazy symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, But once clients get antimicrobials on board, usually within about two weeks, they can start broadening the foods that they can tolerate, which is so exciting. Mm -hmm. Diet is a really important part of the eradication process too, I feel, because if you're eating too many sugars and carbs which is you know parasites primary fuel source it's really hard to get rid of an infection especially some of those microscopic organisms you've got to get that balance right where you've lowered carbohydrates enough that you're not feeding the parasitic infection at the same time that you're trying to eradicate it so it doesn't mean that you go zero carb you don't have to head towards a ketogenic diet but you just need to be careful that you're eating um, good quality carbs at the right time of the day so that you're not feeding the infection consistently and counteracting all the great work that you're doing with your antimicrobials Mm -hmm
0: mm-hmm, and, I mean, we think about all the neurotransmitters being made in the gut, and so yeah. then you're gonna crave that sugar because your neurotransmitters are low. And so all you crave is sugar. So I mean it's like a tricky balance when you're trying to balance yeah. that out and boost that up for sure. That's yeah. so where are you where do you stand on um, on probiotics with a parasite detoxification? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so back to our hierarchy. So because we're treating parasites first and a lot of our clients have SIBO, um, they generally don't tolerate probiotics very well, not because of the parasite, but because of the other stuff that they've got going on in their GI tract. So I find a lot of my clients, I can't give them um, probiotic supplementation while they're on their antiparasitic protocol. However, um, as long as they don't have a big yeast overgrowth, usually something like Saccharomyces boulardii is really nice um,
0: mm-hmm. to give
1: give at the same time, because we know it's really good for supporting the immune system. Sac B can help with reducing yeast populations. In a lot of the literature, actually, they show that when you take antibiotics to get rid of um, certain infections, they get uh, a lot of their clients or their test cases to use Saccharomyces boulardii at the same time to help improve the um, effectiveness of those antibiotics. And we see the same thing with antimicrobials. Um, okay. Using Saccharomyces boulardii at the same time as antimicrobial herbs can help boost the effectiveness of our eradication protocol calls. So SACB is a big one. Um, I'm also using probiotics to address specific symptoms. So if a client is constipated, um, I might use the HN019 strain of B-lactis specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, SAC-B, again, is good for diarrhea-dominant symptoms. I keep mentioning SAC-B. Clearly, I love it. Um, <laughs> but I'm using I'm using antimicrobials very carefully for specific symptom control, or I might use SAC-B for all of the reasons that we mentioned. Do you have any others that you like to use?
0: Um, yeah, I will use... Um I sometimes will use rhamnosis lactobacillus rhamnosis. Yeah. Um depending on you know anxiety symptoms mm. um I actually use a product um uh, called Visbiome. Um I yes. have yeah I, are you using Visbiome? Yeah. Um I will definitely use that. Um I have I have seen you know I'm I'm mixed on my SIBO cases. So if I have I will generally do antimicrobials and see how they do. And if they're having still a ton of constipation or something like that, then I always add the visbiome because that Mm -hmm. starts to eliminate and it, and it, it mitigates the die off symptoms. So that's what I'm using to help with that. Um, And I'll run, you know, oddly, I will also run an organic acids test. And so, so I'm kind of seeing really where they're severely deficient. So I will also like, you know, decide off of that because I can tell if they have SIBO, do they have C. diff overgrowth? Like, where are they? So I'll, I like I like to use that test too to just to help. And almost everybody has yeast or has some bacterial issue, which it's just yeah. it's it's just across the board. It's kind of an epidemic. So yeah, similar. I I pretty much do it a similar way as you, but I I don't give probiotics across the board. But yeah. I, I try to incorporate them in after the first month for sure, just yeah. depending on their symptoms. So yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a, great. So what? Um, so with diet is the big thing that you recommend. Hey, just really reduce the um, simple carbohydrates, sugar, limit alcohol. You know, yeah. Those yeah.
1: those recommendations. Basically, I think another couple of things is um, just being really, you know, make sure you're chewing your food, give your body a chance, make sure you're not eating too much raw food because it's really hard to digest. Mm. Um, Just, you know, stuff that really just gives your GI tract a rest. Um, Anti-inflammatory omega-3 fats, as long as clients don't have huge amounts of diarrhea-dominant symptoms. um, Our omega-3 fats are great, so your flax, chia, walnut, oily fish, um, or your anti-inflammatory spices. So getting some turmeric, cinnamon, and ginger into your meals can be really helpful as well. But generally, it's like putting them onto some lower good quality, so lower carbohydrate, but good quality carbohydrate diet. So still keeping in, you know, like sweet potato and carrots and our root vegetables, um, good quality, lower sugar fruits. So your berries and kiwi and lemon, lime, olives, those sorts of things are still really important. We don't get rid of that. A lot of clients will still call, um, tolerate uh, pseudo grains. I'll get them to keep in pseudo grains if they tolerate those. So quinoa,
0: pseudo? Okay. Yeah, Great. quinoa, Thanks.
1: amaranth, buckwheat and wild rice are pseudo grains. So they're not Um, a conventional grain they're actually a seed Um, so it's actually adding in more of a seed rather than a grain Um, but generally most of the other grains we get rid of if they don't tolerate them because I work with clients who have a lot of really extreme gut health symptoms so grains are usually really reactive for them so we have to be really careful with those Um, as well as all of the processed foods or you know 101 we get rid of processed foods And are you, so I
0: I feel like you travel a lot, don't you? You you definitely travel a lot. So Mm -hmm. a common complaint I hear, um, and you healed your gut um, in a big Mm -hmm. way, is I don't know how to do that when I travel.
1: Do you have any tips on that? Right. Um, Being really organized. (laughs) (laughs) So when I travel, so... I like to, I don't stay in hotels. I usually stay in Airbnb somewhere or an apartment where I have a kitchen. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the biggest enabler to get travel done. Um, I also do relatively slow travel. I don't spend three days in a location. I'll spend minimum a week so that I can have a kitchen and I can prepare majority of my own meals. I'm also doing lots of research. If I'm eating out, I'm researching restaurants that have, you know, I think paleo is a really good um, dietary ideal if you're trying to eat lower carbohydrate. If you have a restaurant that offers like paleo-style meals, you know that there's something that's relatively low carb, using good quality organic whole foods, um, mm. and you know, is going to give you a mostly protein and vegetable and healthy fat based meal, which is a good way to go. So, um, some of the other things that I'll do, and I mean, it depends on the airlines that you're flying with, but I'll cook up batches of, um, things that I can take with me as well when I get to a location I'll buy bags of healthy snacks so like I'll buy bags of like organic I'll find the organic grocery store or buy bags of nuts and mixed nuts and things like that that I can snack on so that if I'm out and I get hungry I'm not looking for something um you know delicious that's locally available that I probably shouldn't be eating if I'm on a protocol yeah right I mean because I think that's the thing right if you're on a protocol it's different to when you're traveling and you're experiencing a culture if you're on a mm-hmm. protocol, and you're working hard at getting rid of a parasite for 60 days. You don't want to compromise that. You want to work hard at that because right. it's not a 60 days that you want to have to repeat if you don't have to. So um, that's very different to if you're traveling to experience a culture and their food. You know, you eat the right. I don't know the churro or whatever you're going to have. <laughs> um, but yeah, so when you're true. on a protocol, you just need to be really organized.
0: And what are you seeing? You know, um, what are you seeing with with die off symptoms? When you're doing this, what are you noticing? Like when a patient actually goes onto a protocol and they're getting, you know, you put them on antimicrobial herbs and wow, you know, what are they going to expect?
1: Yeah. So I think fatigue is probably one of the biggest symptoms that clients will report first is fatigue. Headaches are massive. Um, Mm -hmm joint pain, skin rashes getting worse or skin rashes coming out. Clients who didn't have skin rashes that when they started addressing their parasite, they get skin rashes. Um, mood symptoms are big. Um, What else? Gut, I mean, just increase in their gut symptoms. So if they were constipated before, actually their constipation might get worse before it gets better. Mm -hmm. Their diarrhea might get worse before it gets better. Bloating and gas generally get a bit worse. Respiratory symptoms is another one. Um, So exacerbations in things like asthma evening can be something else that we can see. Um... But usually it's a combination of, of all of those sorts of symptoms are physically what we see. And we know that those symptoms generally come from um, three different things happening in the body while clients are on their protocols. So do you want me to go through that? Because I think it's really important to understand sure. why. yeah, please. So the first reason is cell death. So if we're getting these parasites dying off and all of these toxins being released. So parasites... Um, parasites when they die release gpi-anchored glycolipids so it's kind of like the equivalent of you know how bacteria they talk about bacteria release endotoxin, endotoxins or lps like the polysaccharides mm-hmm. it's the parasite equivalent it's their it's their toxins that are released when the cells die and so the cells break down and they release all of these nasty things that will feed other bacteria and yeast downstream but also will just sort of pollute the gut environment or pollute the body systemically um, and, and give clients symptoms. So when we're doing our protocols for our clients, we're really careful that we titrate up our antimicrobials quite slowly Mm -hmm. so that we're not, when they have their biggest infection load. So when we first start treating parasite, you've got the most amount of parasite in your body that you're ever going to have. So we don't want to hit them too hard with um, too strong antimicrobials from day one. So we'll titrate depending on um, how big their parasite load is over, you know, a week to a month till we get to full dose of antimicrobials to help with managing that cell death. So that's the first thing that we're really careful with. Um, the second thing that we're really careful with, sorry, I think it did it to stall. Uh-uh note, just on my end. Mm-hmm, the okay. second thing that we're really careful with is the body's immune response. So um, how active is their immune system? If their immune system is tanked out, we can usually get through a parasite protocol pretty easily because their immune system is not responding. But if you have a client whose immune system is really overreactive and you can see that on a GI map stool test, you can see what's their um, secretory IgA number looking like. Uh, is their immune system resp- overresponding responding to everything? Then we want to be constantly on top of inflammation and controlling inflammation really well. So sleep is the first thing we work on. Um, Using antioxidants, our anti-inflammatory omega-3 fats, um, having having them in the diet is really important. Just really working on that immune response so that they're not getting dial symptoms from an overactive immune response. And then the third thing that we're really careful with is clearance. So how good are their detox pathways? Because if their detox pathways are all chopped up and their body's not detoxing really well, then they're going to have all sorts of crazy dial symptoms that they're going to need to manage from that. So making sure that their liver is detoxing properly, the lymphatic system is working properly, making sure that we're um, if they're constipated, that we're eliminating properly hydration is incredibly important for detox. And I'll often use get my clients to use binders. And mm-hmm. I don't know what your take is on binders because they can be very controversial. But within the first 60 days of a client's work or journey that they take with us, I usually get them to use a little bit of binder every day mm-hmm. just to help when, with when they've got their biggest amount of infection load dealing with that. Um, if, they, if they really yeah. react to the, to the protocol, I 100% yeah.
0: always do a binder if they're having yeah. like real bad die-off symptoms, I will. I, I play it by ear. Um,
1: yeah. So
0: I don't do it across the board. Um, but yeah. but when, but it makes such a big difference if they're having such big die-off symptoms. So yeah, yeah I totally agree with you. I see why you would use it.
1: Yeah. So that's um, that's sort of our, our, that's how we look at die-off symptoms. And if our clients start experiencing die-off symptoms, that's all the areas that we're trying to address for them.
0: Very good. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So Um, where, um, so where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I work at the clinic that I created. It's called the Functional Gut Health Clinic. Um, I also have another three practitioners and we all do um, the exact same thing. So we all uh, keep up to date with the the literature and um, best practice and we all work together. So we are all going to provide you with the exact same protocol recommendations. So there's Mark, Michaela, Anita and myself. Um, We are a fully online clinic. We work with clients across Australia, New Zealand, UK, USA, and Canada, mostly because that's where we can access the testing and supplementation that we need. Um, We haven't branched out into other countries just yet, just again, because of testing and supplementation access. Um, But our website is www.bellalinderman.com. If you want, I can give you the website address to put underneath the show. Yeah, probably the easiest way. My name is a little bit tricky to spell. So it's probably (laughs) easier just to have a link.
0: (laughs) Awesome. And you are offering a hundred dollars off if you put in fearless 100, uh, for people listening today, if they wanted to get involved in the program. So,
1: yes. Yep. So we have the constipation masterclass is one of the um, resources that we offer outside of our, um, outside of our clinical consultation. So the constipation masterclass basically looks at um, diet, lifestyle, um, motility, uh, basic supplementation for if you're having chronic constipation as a symptom.
0: Awesome. Okay.
1: Yeah. And um, you have three
0: blog posts that detail more of this in, in more detailed information. Number one is how to treat intestinal parasites nat- naturally. Number two is biofilm Treatment protocols, natural biofilm disruptors that work. And number three are pathogen and parasite die off symptoms, how to manage the detox side effects. So, we did not get into yeah. biofilms today. I mean, yeah. I feel like we covered so much, um, which is also awesome. But thank you so much for being here so early in the morning for you. And just thank you so much. You always have such great insight. You're so well researched. And I mean, I just, I love chatting with you and bringing you on the show.
1: Oh, thank thank you you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. That was incredible. Chat makes my day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.